Now, um, starting today, we're starting in Acts 18. So if you want to open um, to Acts 18. And we're going to find um, some pretty cool connections in the Bible that are really going to be, um, I think, eye-opening to our perspective of Christianity and what it meant, not just in our times, but in, in the times of Jesus and the times after Jesus and um, what that looks like. We want to paint a picture today. So we want to get like a, a, a kind of like a panoramic view okay, of what it looked like in Paul's time. So Paul's the man that God had chosen. He was a persecutor of the Christians when they first um, came about. And he was seeking to destroy the church, the Christian church. Right? He was a Jew and, and he was very offended at the very thought of Christianity. Right, Because he was protecting his religion. He was protecting Judaism from invaders who were trying to convert. Whose primary focus seemed to be to convert. Jews, right? It's almost like Christianity's target because the Gentiles had not yet been introduced to uh, Christianity. And so before he converted, they were introduced after he was converted. And since they were produced, they were changed, you know, introduced after he was converted, then anything before is to Jews, right? So all the preaching was to Jews. So he took high offense. You would see, you would see the Apostle Paul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. His name is Saul, right? He carries this kind of murderous spirit toward Christians. But he's then converted, and then in the Book of Acts, his story begins to build up. Like the picture of his life begins to come together. But he writes a number of books, right? Some of those books, uh, one of those books is called Corinthians. And if you didn't know, Corinthians actually has three books. Okay. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. But um, the, the original book is not included. The one that was first written is not included in the Bible. Um, some say there's a... It's, there's too much missing from it. it it's not a complete book um, there's elements in the text that are not being able to be seen clearly so it's not introduced into the canon but second first and second Corinthians which are second and third Corinthians are actually able to be clearly understood and translated as we come to find out right because we have only first and second Corinthians in the Bible. So I actually draw out some maps and so we're going to be able to look at some maps and this is going to be fundamental in understanding um, the Corinthian church because we're going to talk about the Corinthian church. But you're going to find that in Acts 18, in another book in the, of the Bible, written by another person. So Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. Acts is written by a man named Luke who is a Greek. Okay? Greek physician. He writes Acts. So you're going to actually see Paul's journey in Corinthians begin in Acts 18, which is kind of cool, right? Because you, you, you get to see the, the process or the behind-the-scenes footage before he amounts to writing a book, right? So he's going to give us some behind-the-scenes footage from a biblical perspective. Then we're going to go geographical and historical. 
we want to see these and these mean everything to us now and I'll tell you why because Corinthian Corinth is a cosmopolitan city and if you don't know what a cosmopolitan city is it's a city that's very accepting of uh, multicultural um, multi-religion right it's, it's very 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 um, multi-purposed it's a city of uh, it's a center of trade and so we'll kind of let's just start on the maps just to kind of get a picture here and um, this is just so you can kind of see and I'll draw on one and then kind of point them out to you guys so you can see them from your direction but if you notice here on the top there's Rome right so Paul wrote um, a book to the uh, to the church in Rome there's a church in Rome um, you see Greece up here so Rome is actually the 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 people in charge of pretty much everything from Greece to where Corinth is, right? The cultural perspective where you get all the like philosophers is Greece, okay? So rules and conduct and policies and everything that's governmental comes from Rome. Anything that's like philosophical, cultural comes from Greece. So you're going to see these having a huge influence in Corinth, okay? And so all of this darkness is water. This is all water. You have Asia Minor, you have Israel, all the way over here. And then you have Egypt down here. I know it's kind of cut off. Egypt down here. So you kind of see, like, this is, imagine um, Jesus being born somewhere over here, and then he travels to Egypt. You, you see how, like, that's quite a distance, but he makes it there with his parents after being born, Right? You see Paul going to Asia Minor. You see him in Rome. You see him in Greece. You see him traveling all the way to Asia Minor. You see him in these different cities in the, in the Bible and the scriptures. But you notice something is that Corinth is at the center of it all. So around Corinth right here, right here, right here, okay. This, this, these waters are the worst waters to take a boat in. This is where they would, many ships would, you, you use the term shipwreck, right? So the Bible uses the term, you know, some have uh, been shipwrecked concerning the faith. And, and they got this concept because these waters are terrible. It's a terrible path. So all the trade that came from Israel, from Asia, from Egypt, right? To get to Rome or to get across, they would never take this lane. They would never take this lane here, okay? Because it was the worst path to go. So guess what they would do? They would go from Israel straight to Rome. If you look at that lining there, you'll notice that there's water, okay? And there's a four-mile plate of ground that actually boats would come here, okay, right before it and right after it. They would drop their merchandise off here, pick up another boat here, put all the merchandise here, and then travel it over here. So this is what you would call a center of trade, okay? Um... They had games. They didn't have the Olympic Games, but they had the second-rated games in history where um, they would race, they would, they would fight, they would do many things in these games, right? So you're looking at all of these. There were synagogues in Corinth, okay? There's actually historical proof of there actually being synagogues, Jewish synagogues in Corinth. So you see this city, they had the Temple of Apollos. They had 26 temples on record in history. That's 26 of them, okay? Dedicated to different gods. 
Aphrodite's was one of the top temples, one of the, mo the main temples, okay? Aphrodite's, they had, um, historically they say about a thousand prostitutes that lived in that temple and it's on the top of the hill. So it's a city that's actually on the top of the hill where it's good for war, right? So everyone would run up when, when people would come to battle. This city lasted all the way to the 19th century. It wasn't destroyed until the 19th century, right? We're like in the 21st, right? So, I mean, it's, it's not that far, far off from our survival. This is what made this city a city of pleasure. Um, you, there's a phrasing called Corinthianized, which means to be um, sexually immoral. If you were Corinthianized, so all these people from Greece, from Rome, from Asia, from Egypt, from Israel, they would come here and they would become Corinthianized. Because this place, right, they, they kind of, um, some historians, some theologians say it's kind of like a modern LA or a modern Las Vegas, or because all the pleasures of the known world, it being a cosmopolitan city, right, everything's kind of relative kind of like how our society is right now it's the most relatable historically biblically biblically and historically it's the most relatable society to what we have modern in modern times especially with all the philosophy right everything's relative it's what works for you it's what feels good to you right there's really no standard um, even morality is subjective in this city so subjective meaning that it's up to you Right? There's no set standard, and even if there is a God, you can worship Apollos, you can worship Aphrodite's, you can worship this, you can worship that, right? And so even when they would go to the temple of Aphrodite's, they would have um, relations with the prostitutes, and in the night, the prostitutes would come down from the temple into the city, right, for anyone who missed out. <laughs> so they literally, like, this is, this city was the from a moral standpoint, one of the most difficult, or for, we would perceive the most difficult places to start a church, right? So you have the concepts of a temple, you have the concepts of um, this, in Corinthians here, um, Paul gets uh, judged, he gets brought to something called the Bema Seat. The Bema Seat is um, in the Bible what they would use for God as the judgment seat of God. Right? It comes from a Greek phraseology called Bema. On the seat, it's, a, it's in the main um, plaza of the city of Corinth. And there's a place there where the highest ruling official from Rome would sit in that place. And he would um, listen, he would observe the city, he would also commend, and he would condemn. So you get words like commendation, you get words like condemnation, you get words, right? Because if someone's to be condemned, they're, they're brought there, they put on a, on a, on a little like uh, stone, with their hands tied and everything, and then they're whipped in front of everybody, right? Or if they wanted, if you were an outstanding citizen and they liked what you were doing, right? And you were doing well for the city and you're making it, then they would bring you and commend you in front of everyone. So this city was very, um, it was loud. It was the fourth largest city of the known world in that time. So now, let's read some Bible, right? Let's read some Bible about it, that way, because we have some context now. So, um, chapter 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born of Pontus, 
lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. So he met this guy, okay, in Corinth. He came to Corinth. This is Paul coming to Corinth, right? And because he was of the same craft, he abode with him, with them there, and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. So here's a point. Um, put it this way. Because there was games played here, all these people coming here for these games, Paul watched the games. He was there. There's proof that he was there in 8051. Okay, there's the names that he writes here are actually recorded in history, not in the Bible, in history as people, actual people, okay, that Paul states that were uh, Roman officials. They were, their, their names are ingrained in Roman history. So it, it, it builds a strong case. So when he's here in 8051, that year they had games. He's a tent maker. Why is he a tent maker? It's the most profitable occupation for that city. Why? Because all these people are coming. It's a it's a cosmopolitan city. Everyone's coming in from the outside, right? To 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 come and watch these games and watch people compete and all that stuff. So what is what do they need? Place to stay. They need places to live, right? So he's a tent maker along with this guy. They're tent makers together. That's their occupation. And he reasoned, verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. So notice here how it's saying in the Bible that there's a synagogue in Corinth. Okay? This is important. And persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go into the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. The Lord then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city." He's talking about Corinth, right? And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And when Galileo was the deputy of Archaea, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the Bema seat, judgment seat. See that right there? Okay. Saying, this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now with... Um, now about to open his mouth, Galileo said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked, lewd, lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would I that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of, of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. So they all came to the judgment seat to bring Paul, right? And they said, this guy, he speaks against God in our law. He, they brought him to the Bema seat, right? To be condemned. But God had told him, speak openly, for you will not be condemned. So he speaks openly. They don't like it. It stirs him up. They bring him to the judgment seat. He's not condemned. 
Then he says, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes uh, uh, and the chief ruler of the synagogue and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gileo cared for none of those things. So they, they actually took their chief ruler, okay, and beat him instead. They were demanding blood. Someone was going to be blamed because Paul was having such an influence. Okay, But they rejected him in the synagogue. So he left and he went and started a church at someone's house. Right? So we're going to um, go from here to Corinthians. Chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're doing somewhat of, of an overview, but um, obviously we're skipping all the first Corinthians one, right? Chapter, I mean, the first book. The first book of Corinthians is written to Greeks, primarily everyone who became a Christian who's dealing with moral issues. When you're a Jew and you convert to Christianity, there's not much moral issues, right? Because you already hold the morality of the law. It's, it will be on chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. You already hold the morality of the law, right? So what need... It's not really a drastic lifestyle change, okay? But in 1 Corinthians, this is what was happening. They were taking communion, parting with it, turning it into a, like a wine fest, right? A, a, a becoming... Oh, look at this bread. Look at this wine. And instead of taking it as the body and the and the, the blood of Christ, what they what they were doing is making it a party. Why? Because they're in a city where morality, the lines are blurred. There's there's a blur, right? So you would have people going to the temple of Aphrodite. Now you can kind of see the picture, right? They're going to the temple of Aphrodite, engaging with prostitutes, coming down. Coming to the church, meeting in the houses, being used in spiritual gifts, being used by God, right? But then what does he say? Does he condemn these people? Does he judge them? Does he say they're going to hell? Does he say um, anything like that? No, one of the first preachings against what they were doing was to say, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know you're the temple of God? So he's telling people who are going to the temples. See, his metaphors and his analogies are very clear, right? You go to these temples and you pay homage to Apollos, homage to Aphrodite, homage to Hercules, homage to these different gods. There's, there's 27 of them. You know what I mean? And since there's about 27 of them, I mean 26 of them, what ends up happening is Paul Paul decides to make the clear analogy that take your eyes off these temples and understand that you are now the temple. You are the temple. Pay homage to your temple because I live in you. So you're, you're talking about people who are fornicating, people who are who are partying, people who are crazy. They believe in Jesus. They receive Jesus. They were baptized, okay? But he calls them the temple of God. And here's the biggest issue. It's like, Paul never disqualifies their Christianity. 
He only does that with um, the Jews in Galatia, right? Where he says, those who seek to be justified by the works of the law fall from grace. If you think you're right with God by your moral behavior, you fall from grace. But he over here, he doesn't do that. He says, you're the temple. He reminds them of their right standing, their righteousness in Christ, right? So when we get to 2 Corinthians, he's no longer dealing with that. That issue is kind of resolved in, a, in, a, in, in the big sense, right? Because it was common. It was common that they were visiting the, the temple of Aphrodite, right? But they grew stronger in faith. They grew stronger in faith, right? And then he starts saying, did he say this? This is what he says about some of their change. But then he also starts talking to some of the Jews who became believers, okay? So he starts talking to the Jews who know the law of Moses. Because then you'll see him start talking about the law of Moses right here. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we as some other epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. He's saying, after all this change, do you need to be commended? So remember, where's the concept of commendation come from? The Bema seat, right? The judgment seat, where the judge commends good behavior in the city. So he's saying, do we need letters of commendation from you or for you? Right? He says, no, you are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Your good works, the result of, of the repentance that you had, the change from where you were. You guys were believers who were visiting prostitute temples. I reminded you of your standing with God, that you're the temple of God. You, you came from that. But do you need a letter of commendation? Do you need a pat on the back for overcoming that? No, because it has its own reward. Overcoming um, immoral issues has its own reward in itself. It doesn't require someone to pat you on the back. I know it's a temptation to, to feel like, oh, I need someone to validate all the good things I've been doing, right? But that's up to God. He says, you, you are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistles of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to God, where not that we are sufficient, this, this word can also be translated as worth, not that we are worth anything of ourselves, to think anything as of ourselves, but that our sufficiency or our worth is of God. So it is like, to this point, it's, it's, it's no matter how much progress we make, we're still under grace. Is that our progress and our sufficiency and our worth is still defined by God. Right? So whether in an overabundance of goodness or a lack of it, right, your worth is still defined by what Jesus did on the cross. It's never by, like he says here, not, not to think that we are worth anything of ourselves. We're not accounting as anything to ourselves, right? That's for the good and for the bad. If you struggle in your failure and you're like, at this other side of Corinthians versus this side of Corinthians, right? From one stage of being in the temple of Aphrodite all the way to the stage of overcoming it, right? It's the same trust that we have in God, that our standing with God 
has at this point never been by us when we were at our worst, and at this point when we were at our best still is not determined by us. And this is why we have to be, like, not have to, but it should, be, it should naturally guide us to being patient with one another if we truly believe that. If we truly have faith that our standing with God is by faith alone in what Jesus did on the cross, it would give us a gratitude, right, that your faith is also, right, in Jesus. Your faith also is in Jesus, and your faith also is in Jesus. So guess what? He makes the difference for all of us and brings us to the same table to eat, okay? And here's where the Jews had a problem. They were not used to eating with Greeks, they were not allowed to, according to the law, eat with Greeks. So when they were, saw them eating with Greeks, it's not normal, right? It's easy to change someone's, like, I don't say to change someone's religion, but most often religion is, is not much of, it's more of a here thing, right? And a here thing. So when, when we kind of go between religions and things like that, um, we just move onto it. But what we, where we struggle is culture. We always bring our culture into most of what our religion is, right? Even if we change religions, we'll still always be who we are culturally because that's harder to change about us than our religion. So you're talking about these Greeks coming in with their culture, right? These Jews demanding, these Christian Jews demanding these people change, right? Because someone wrote to Paul, guess what they're doing, right? modern day that's amazing teletel right someone's like sending Paul letters guess what they're doing they're at Aphrodite's right look what they did with communion they're over here partying with it right because Paul's writing them a letter he's not present with them so he's hearing about what they're doing right from a trustworthy source but also probably a more like conservative Jew already has morality ingrained and feels a a great incentive to let Paul know of the atrocities of sin that are happening within the church. So imagine this city, then imagine a church in this city that is being heavily influenced by everything that's going on. It's a center of trade for the known world. People from here, here, and here, all these different cultures clashing in one place. Here's a, here's a, a perfect picture. You know, a lot of airports have like strip clubs and casinos and a lot of like some of the things that we would count as like immoral, right? Hostels close to the airports. Well, why? Because what somebody would do in their own city, right? Because you're known by face. What they wouldn't do in their own city, they would be willing to do in another city where no one knew them. Right? So you have tons of immorality here set up for people in Rome, right? All these governors, all these people in charge, all these, these, these Greek folks, all these people from Asia Minor and Israel and Egypt coming here as a center of trade, but then also receiving the pleasures of Corinth. Because it's there, they're, they're there to sell it. Come here. Stay the night here. Lay here, right? This is where you actually get a lot of those modern um, Roman movies 
they do a really good job at painting the picture of how um, immoral their culture was, you know. And then in the Temple of Aphrodite, there was male and female prostitutes. So you could have whatever your pick was. So you're really talking about this mush of a city with a church that's engaging in all the mush. Completely enthralled. Right? Because they're just converted. So how do you transcend the city, the culture of that city? How do you transcend it? To get past it, right? When everything goes, when all the immoral things you could do, there's no rules against it, except for there's a God who you've been baptized, whose name you have been baptized in, whose name, who, who's someone who has saved you and who has redeemed you and has bought you with His own blood, right? That is the only source of obligation to do the right thing that you have okay so he's he's saying you've changed from there do we do we commend you right do you need a letter of commendation do you need some big reward he's saying either way our worth isn't defined by all of that all the change we've had all the good things we've done okay it's still defined by god and we have such trust to god word that it's always by the same thing it's always by christ our standing has never been because of how we feel or or or, or how, what we think about our own sins right it's of what jesus has done in place of our sins that we have any standing so every every time that you think or that you deviate from your standing being only by jesus you'll notice you'll fall into sin It's, it's, like the, it's like the perfect pathway to sin. Is it when you forget or you lose sight, right, of what grace really means in relation to your standing with God? And then you're like, well, I don't, I've done this already, so I might as well. And you continue down that path, right, that circular path of, well, I might as well. Guess where as I might as well, this leads to, I might as well again, and I might as well again. And then I might as well leads to worse as mine as well, right? <laughs> I know that's kind of like a, a weird phrasing, but so then he says here in verse seven, but if the ministration of death written engraved in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses, with the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away with, how shall not the ministration of the spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. So he's comparing two ministries here, the law and grace, right? The law and the spirit. Where one, the law, it's, it's ministry of death. So when people preach law to us, that we are right with God by law, by what we, that by what we do we have standing with God, or blessings of obedience, right? When we talk about that, based off behavior, we're actually preaching death to people because none of us under any circumstance could merit the blessings of obedience. So to think you can, you, you become self-condemned. Jesus already paid, right? But your lack of faith in that brings you back to a works mentality. This is why we don't 
the worldliness is not like the, the music you listen to or the places you go. It's a mentality. Okay, it's the Greek word cosmos, which means a, a lack of dependence. It's living in a world that has no dependence on God. Right? That creates the music, that creates the sceneries, that creates all of that. But it's a, it's a place of a lack of dependence. Is that I'm right with God or I'm okay on the basis of what I deem, what I think makes me right. It's a do-good, get-good mentality. It's the worldly mentality. Is that if I do good, I'll get good. Right? In, in a practical sense, that works. You do well at work, right? But what we don't realize is that even that starts with grace. Because you are graced with tools by people through education, through parents, through, right? They gave you stuff without a cost to enable you to do that work that would therefore bear you that fruit. But we cut this out and we just kind of strictly go from a do good. And that's what we're saying. That's what a worldly mentality is. It's living, it's living life by sowing and reaping and saying, okay, you reap what you sow and everyone loves it. It's, 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 it's addicting, right? You give your dog a treat because it does a dance, right? But here, Jesus flips it on its head and he says, well, what I sowed, you're going to reap and what you sowed, I'm going to reap. And he says, believing that is what will keep you away from sinful addiction, which is beyond us. How does that happen? How does that work? It makes no sense. The foolishness of God, the Bible says, is even, it's more than the wisdom of man. God, even God's, God's not foolish, of course, right? It's just, an, it's just an analogy. That even his most foolish thoughts are greater than the, the highest thoughts of man that man could produce, right? And it's like us to think, oh, it's this way. It's do good, get good, and then I achieve good, right? But it's like God to flip it on its entire head and say, that's not how it's going to work for me. Why? Because if everything runs through that system, then man in himself will look to justify himself. But God has never accepted man on the basis of what man could provide for himself. Adam and Eve... They provided fig leaves for themselves. What did God do? Not good enough. I must provide for you a clothing. He provides for himself. Right? Which keeps us in a state of gratitude. Thankfulness. Because we always see the gap between us and him. We never get... This is humility. This is how you stay humble. Right? So... As we're going through this, he's making this analogy of law and spirit and, and how the law brings death and the spirit brings life. He's saying grace brings life. Understanding that you have favor with God, not of your own work, not of your own effort, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, brings life and life more abundantly to a person. And he's saying law, thinking you do good, get good, brings death to a person because there's going to be a day where you're not going to be able to do a good you're not going to be able to do enough good to get enough good. To get the good that you think you deserve from the good you've done. It won't come. And you'll wonder why. There's, there's days you'll plant seeds in the ground and you won't reap a harvest. And you'll wonder why. But I did the work. Why am I not reaping it? Right? 
And as a believer, we don't operate under that anymore. We proceed from faith. We're given everything at the start. The whole training program, the whole package, the whole, right? It's our job to work it out. The Bible says not to use the grace in vain, right? Not to let it be in vain. At the end of 1 Corinthians, he says, don't let the grace be in vain. You've received it. You've received everything pre-set, right? Given to you beforehand. You start right with God. You don't have to work towards it. Work it out. Can you waste it? Yes, absolutely. So, so he goes through the, he goes through this conversation. Then verse four, in chapter four, verse one, he says, "Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not." Wh which ministry? The ministry of chapter three, the ministry of the Spirit. So, on the day of Pente the day of Pentecost, when the law of Moses came, that's the first Pentecost. Okay. 50 days after the Passover, Penta means five, okay? Cost, it's, it's the celebration of 50 days after the Passover. So when, when the angel of death passed over Egypt with Moses, right, and, and all the plagues and all that, they would, they would kill lamb, they would put the blood on the doorpost and the angel of death passed over. 50 days after that, they received the law of Moses on the day of Pentecost, okay? Jesus dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, he dies on Passover. 50 days later, day of Pentecost, they receive the Spirit. Okay? When they receive the law, 3,000 people die by the sword. Moses comes down. You know that the, the Bible really gives a clear description of the stones being blue, being burned in heat. And they say when you burn them in heat this way, that they're actually, most likely from a theological perspective, they were made of sapphire the original stones because of how they're depicted and how, how they're made that process breeds sapphires so he comes down with the stones right you can imagine these beautiful sapphire stones ingrained with the ten commandments and then they're already breaking the commandments so he has to execute judgment law brings death 3,000 people died on the first Pentecost Second Pentecost, right? Jesus is already dead, very resurrected. He's in heaven. The Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people are added to the church. It's a ministry of life. It's a ministry of adding people to the church. This is why we don't preach. We're not here to disqualify people from God. We're here to qualify people from God. I mean, for God. God's already qualified them. We're here to tell them about their qualification. You've been pre-qualified for heaven by Jesus Christ. So this is why in this church, we're not going to be out there with the signs saying, quit this sin, quit that sin. To deal with people on the basis of their sins is irrational. Because if I deal with you on the basis of your sins, let's all bring our sin to the table. Right? Let's all do it. Like if I'm going to hold a sign pointing out someone's exact sin against them and why they're not qualified for heaven and to repent right like it's like if it's something they can do on their own um i'm disqualifying them from heaven i'm under the operation of the law i'm preaching death what are they going to say i don't want to believe that because if i believe that that means i'm going to hell i'd rather not believe that i'm good off god right Wait, but when do you see signs the same that qualify people for heaven 
right? You don't. Because the devil would love nothing more than for us to just walk around and slamming our, our hammer on people and disqualifying everybody from heaven. Oh, you're gay. You're this. You're that. You're this, right? Calling people by their names, by their sins. But when Jesus poured out the Spirit, God poured out the Spirit, right? On the second Pentecost, did people die? No, they were added to the church. They were added to God's family. And, and the Bible also says they were added daily, more added daily after the fast. So the, the ministry of the law, right, is death. If, I, if I'm a preacher of the law, I'm preaching death to people. I'm disqualifying them. If I'm preaching grace, I'm qualifying people. I'm supplying them righteousness instead of demanding it from them. I'm providing them holiness instead of demanding it from them. If you believe Jesus died, buried, and resurrected, you are holy to God. Right? If you will believe that Jesus paid for your sins, you are holy to God. You are righteous to God. Where, where are those signs? In spite of where you currently stand in your addictions, in your behaviors, in your habits, you have standing with God if you believe that. People say, oh, they're going to continue in it. They're going to continue doing it. Well, what are you continuing to do? What are you continuing to do? Because it can never be on the basis of our sin or our goodness or our bad. It can't. It's impossible. If it ever is for one day, we all lose. None of us make it. If it ever is for one moment, we all lose. Every one of us. God is not illogical in his thinking, in his calculation of redemption, right? So when we think about this, it's like, it's kind of, it's kind of like a, like a, like a dumb logic. Unbelief and condemnation and, and legalism are a really dumb logic. It doesn't make sense because it says you start in faith and then you end in works, right? You're justified with God by what you do and then you're justified um, to God by faith and you're justified by your works later. It makes no sense. You have to continually be justified by faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. It's an emphasis that it's impossible for any of us to please God except that we believe Jesus pleases God. Does Jesus please God? And as much as he pleases God, that's where I stand. Because I have faith that he's on my behalf. He stands on my behalf. Amen? Okay. Um, so, now when we read this, a lot of people have taken these, some of these words and kind of applied them to like a works mentality. Like, do good, get good. And they'll say like, some of the strangest things, but we'll read it with this in mind, what we've kind of learned. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So he doesn't want us to handle the word of God deceitfully, right? Verse 3, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Okay. Now, this gospel aspect here we'll go to second um um second corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 okay 
And it says here, but we all with open face beholding, okay? That's going to be a key word, beholding. Beholding, if I'm looking at you, I'm beholding you, right? I'm seeing you. As in a glass, some versions say mirror, as in a mirror or glass, the glory of the Lord. So as I behold the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory. So as I see Jesus in his glory, I'm changed. This word changed is the same Greek word as transfigured. Okay. The Bible says and he was transfigured. He was transfigured. Meaning it was done to him. He didn't transfigure himself. We don't change ourselves. Contrary to proper belief. The scripture doesn't teach us to change ourselves. It teaches us that as we behold him, we're changed. It's, it's not the wisdom of the world where you... Here's the seven steps to change, right? Write it down. Execute it daily, right? Nine, 90 days later, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new habit, right? It's not that. That's not how we change in the Bible. We change by beholding Jesus. When Jesus becomes of more value to us and we see his true value, the, the, the value that God has assigned to him for us to see, we are changed by that. Okay, it's, it says from glory to glory. So here's the, here's the process. I see him, I'm changed. So I continue to see him more and I'm constantly changed from glory to glory. The more I see him, the more I'm changed. But is this just talking about in the Bible? What is it talking about? Verse 14, go back to 314. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Which veil is done away with in Christ. But even till this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. It's talking about the actual book. Okay. The actual words of the Bible of the Old Testament. For a person, when you look at the Old Testament and you don't see Christ, there's a veil. Right? But the veil is taken away within Christ. He's the Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. Right? I know a lot of people like to you know, blow shofars and horns and stuff. But Jesus is our shofar. Jesus is our victory. He is. We don't need these things. Jesus is our prayer shop. He's our covering when we pray. This is why we're not um, Judeo-Christians. We're not um, Messianic Christians. Right? Messianic Jews kind of have a, a middle practice in some things, right? They keep kind of a Sabbath, kind of, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, some, there's some issue with that. Because when you read that Jesus is, when we read him in, into those stories, right? And we see him in those stories. Jesus is a type of Moses. He's a type of Joseph. He's a type of David. This is why we do those examples, Right? Because we want to see Christ in those stories. Joseph, David, betrayed by his brothers, right? David, anointed for the entire kingdom, but only ruled one, one tribe. Jesus, anointed for the entire kingdom, right? But only rules one tribe, the church, right now. When he comes back, he'll rule the entire world. So you're kind of like, you see the, the typology there. When we, when we, we look at the prophecies, 
right? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So when it says Moses, the law, Abraham, Adam and Eve, and all those stories are in the first five books in Moses. This is Moses, okay? The Pentateuch, Pentateuch five. So this is the Pentateuch, first five books. The rest of the Bible, all the prophets, the judges, the kings, right? All of that has this as the foundation, right? So Moses is ingrained in everything else. So Moses is all-inclusive for the entire Old Testament because the law of Moses is with David, the law of Moses is with Solomon, the law of Moses is with Zechariah, the same priest, right, that gave birth to John the Baptist. That same priesthood would, would deny Jesus 30 years later. So you start seeing these this full picture, right? This panoramic. I told you we're going to kind of go panoramic view, right? So he's saying here, here's, here's the secret to a new covenant transformation. See Jesus. See him in the scriptures. This is why we emphasize what we emphasize as a church. Not because, oh, it's a good idea or it's a, you know, it's a, from a, from a, no, the Bible says, as we see him in the reading of the Old Testament, right? Do you know all the New Testament is just an interpretation of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament? That's all it is. They just explain how Jesus, that's what they're doing here. Law of Moses, right? How Jesus supersedes the law from technicalities, from the standpoints of technically how he supersedes the law, right? So he says, don't handle the word of God deceitfully. If our gospel is hid, this is the gospel to reveal Jesus to people, right? If it's hid, it's hid, it's hid to them that are lost. If we're not preaching this message, to see Jesus, right? It's hit to them that are lost. Verse 4, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is in the, the image of God, should shine unto them. So he's saying that the devil's main agenda is to hide Jesus, this gospel of Jesus, from them that are lost. One of his main agendas is to hide it. It's for him to think that we're still Judaism. But with Jesus as a prophet. Because that's how most of Christianity acts. We're, we're just, we're do good, get good, right? Obedience, obey, obey. How many times from a pulpit have you heard the words obey? Obey what? A, the Bible's not talking about obedience to works here. It's talking about obedience to having faith. When you sin, your job is to obey in this respect to have faith that your righteousness is not on your own that it's in Jesus Christ so when I sin I need to go run to God with my faith that he's enough then instead of thinking that my lack of righteousness withholds me from God's blessings I'm to run to him and have faith that his righteousness sustains me that's the obedience of the New Testament. That's what we must embrace. That's what we must preach. That is the gospel. So, for we preach not ourselves, 
Facebook, Christ Jesus the Lord, and our and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who com commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So through the face, through seeing Jesus, through his face, we see God's light. He makes a parallel, okay? He says, in the beginning, God commanded light to shine in darkness. You see the, the utter darkness of space. God commands light to shine in the darkness. The same way when we speak Jesus into someone's life, okay? It's the light to their darkness. Because what does their darkness say? I have no hope. I have no peace. I have no righteousness. I'm not good enough. I'm sinful. Right? That's what their righteousness says. That's what their darkness says. But the light of Jesus comes and says, I got it covered. It's taken care of. It's paid. You're good. Okay? And we're going to end with this telling here. Okay? But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What treasure? This treasure of, of simply seeing Jesus and being changed. We have this in, in human bodies. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So that we know it, it's not on us. It's not about our performance. It's not about our goodness. It's about what he has accomplished on our behalf. This is what we get when we believe this. That we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. When we're troubled on every side, we get distressed. We are stressed out of our minds. When we see trouble from every angle, we become stressed, unfunctional people, right? But here's, when you possess the faith of Christ, right? And you hold to it and you realize that he's on your side, right? In spite of all the reasons he shouldn't be, what happens? You're no longer distressed and troubled. This is, this is the, the, the icing on the cake for us, right? This is kind of what all this led to. He's talking to a Corinthian church here. Yeah, you're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. They were sending Jews from Rome to Corinth because they were kicking them out of Rome. Or else they were going to die and be persecuted. So they're troubled on every side. Yet, not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Complicated situations, things that are unsolvable. You tell your friends about it, they don't know what to tell you, right? Situations that are just so complicated, so convoluted, so confusing that you're like, I give up. So you're in despair, you have no hope, you have no source of help. But guess what? We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. So he's not saying you're not gonna, you're, I'm not gonna devoid you of trouble. I'm not gonna devoid you of complicated situations. What I'm gonna do is be the light so that you're not in distress and so that you're not in despair. That's, it's not that we're sinless that's gonna change people around us or make us anything special to them. It's that when bad things happen to us, we have a better response. We have a better response. That's what makes Christians special. Not the fact that we have greater morality. All that stuff is good. Don't get me wrong. Right? People have honorable ways about them where they, they, they honor people who can do the right thing consistently, right? 
but here's what gives everyone hope. When you see someone like myself or many other people who have gone through traumas as children or, 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 or consistently bad cases, right? The worst of luck happening again and again and again and still have a smile and still be upbeat, to have nothing and still be a giver. We are perplexed, not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. We will feel persecuted at times. We will feel cast down at times. But this treasure that we hold in this earthen vessel is that when I'm in trouble, I need to see Jesus. I need to see him. And my hope is his unchanging word. That when I go in the story of Moses, when I go in the story of David, and I see the complexities of his life, just a boy outcasted by his father, left outside just to sleep with a sheep, was not acknowledged when the prophet came into town, just a nobody becoming the king. That's the hope. Is it through Christ? The smallest army wins the greatest victory. With God, you're the majority. With God, you're the majority. And to have that hope in this earthen vessel makes me immune to the effect. Not the cause, but to the effect of life. To the chain reaction of what perplexities and troubles normally do to a person. I'm no longer subject to those. I'm not in distress. I'm consistent. I'm stable. My emotions are whole. Amen? So this is like, obviously, like the details, like for your education. But at the end result, there's always that preaching point, you know, where we make a, a communication about what hope we have in God for our personal lives and our situations right now. No matter how you feel about where you stand with God, have faith. You're commanded to obey God in this, in this one respect. Continue to believe you are right with God. You've been baptized. Okay. You believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You have standing with God. You have standing with God. And when you're out there, when you're road raging or you're mad or you're upset, you still have standing with God. And we need to let the world know that so that they stop holding Christians to ridiculous standards, first of all. And second of all, so we stop holding ourselves to ridiculous standards so that when we fail, we quit on our commitment to God. Let's stay focused. Let's stay pushing forward not because we think we're great or because we're anybody but because God is continually supplying that today I have standing he knew all your sins he knew all your troubles he knew all the bad things you would willfully do before he saved you and still saved you and still gave you an experience with him still did it still did it he knew it but still did it. So there's not something in your way. There's not. So when you pray, pray as close to God. I'm close to God. I have standing with God. 
not on, not on the basis of me, because of what Jesus did on the cross. And it's an everyday thing, right? So let's live that out this week. Um, perfect timing. <laughs>